Is there anything you would have done differently? We reported a true story. Our colleague Brian Williams is back in Kuwait City tonight after a close call on the skies over Iraq. Controversial Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh and questions about Kavanaugh's drinking in the past. Sean Hannity, come on up, Sean Hannity. Today, Andrew Cuomo is having a moment. Hey, dog. I'm Chris Steyerwald. And I'm Eliana Johnson. Welcome to Angstein Wretches, where we break down what's going wrong and what's going right with the American news media. Eliana Johnson, I joined your friend Megan Kelly on her show this week, and I had the distinct privilege of being introduced as your co-host. I've been introduced as many things in my life, some flattering, some not flattering, but I have never had the specific distinguishment of being introduced as your co-host, and I liked it. I'm getting quite used to it, I must say. <laughs> well, it was cool and it was nice to follow in your well-trod footsteps in that space and we had a good time. Chris, are we going to talk about Matt Gates? Well, I mean, obviously here just as I record just blocks away from the United States Congress, much of Washington remains in in ruins, a smoldering pit after the apocalypse of Kevin McCarthy. That's our obvious front page. So why don't we dive in? What day was that this week? My week has been a blur. I spent, I just got back from Bozeman, Montana last night. Cool. Where I spent Monday through yesterday. Were you recreating uh, or were you conferencing? Uh, I Neither. I was working, spending time with the Republican Senate candidate uh, out there. And I'm uh, working on a profile. Uh, um, so journalism. I so I think it was Tuesday. Tuesday or Wednesday that this actually I happened. Right. I think it's I think Tuesday's right. Okay. Kevin McCarthy lost his job and when's was it Wednesday he announced he would not seek it again. But what did we think? I think I know we've talked before that premature obituaries had been written about Kevin McCarthy. I was talking with someone close to him last week who's quite close to him actually whose prediction was there'll be a shutdown. The government will reopen in a couple of weeks when they can't pay the troops. So I think this came as a surprise even to McCarthy's closest allies. Well, the the real surprise was that McCarthy went ahead and avoided the shutdown. He could have prevented the vote if he had given the rebels what they wanted, or he could have not prevented it. He could have delayed it. So basically, Matt Gates and what did it end up being, eight I think eight in total. So seven, seven others joined Gates. Well, and you have to count Matt Gates and his hair is two, so nine. But the they wanted the shutdown because they wanted to get to that point where eventually McCarthy would would break and he would have to use Democratic votes to reopen the government. And McCarthy tried a tried to outflank them and he went straight to Democratic votes to avoid the shutdown. He probably would have had a better negotiating position to keep his job if he was in shutdown, right? Because he would have teased and placated those folks. The, the, I, I did not believe that McCarthy, I did not believe that McCarthy would be removed as speaker, but I also did not believe that he would be as successful as he was for as long as he was that he would be able to get a debt ceiling increase, 
that he would be able to keep up Ukraine funding for as long as he could, that he could do those small, the small number of important things that he was trying to do. And he did it because he was able to unite Republicans basically to pass stuff. It wasn't going to, to ultimately be passed by the Senate or signed into law, but he could, he could improve their negotiating position. And once that clack of rebels prevented that from happening, it, I, I guess it was just a matter of time. One of the things I thought was unexamined in this whole thing by the press generally, which talked about Republicans deposing their own speaker, which they did. But we we now sort of have minority rule on the Hill in two ways. The first is this was eight Republicans essentially deposing their speaker. And the second is the Republicans couldn't have done this without Democrats joining with them. So it's both minority rule from within the Republican Party and minority rule in that the Democrats essentially did this. It was 100 percent of Democrats joining with eight Republicans. What's the and- what's the what's the criticism from Matt Gates and his group that Kevin McCarthy worked with Democrats? What did Matt Gates and his group do? Exactly. They worked with Democrats. I just think the ramifications of that haven't really been examined. Surely this is something that Republicans are not going to forget. And I I don't exactly know what what the fallout of this is, but but it's interesting. Well, I I think the. Well, can we. It's because uh, there's so much focus on Gates and the personality of Gates and not so much focus on. Democrats decided to do this. Yes. But on the other hand, how many Hakeem Jeffries isn't very well known yet. How many Republicans would have been willing to vote for Nancy Pelosi if Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or one of the squad members had done the same thing to her when Democrats had a five seat majority? I absolutely believe Republicans would have done the same thing. Yeah. But this is the situation that we're in. So this is the one we're we're talking about. But I I believe Republicans would have done the same thing. Yeah, I I think they would have done the same thing. And I guess the the question is, there's what what will it matter? And this is something I'm wrestling with a lot. We have a lot of big firsts, president, former president in court, current president's son pleading not guilty to gun charges and a speaker of the House being removed. First time ever. Now, we had two speakers of the House who basically left ahead of the posse, right? They, they, they were one step ahead of the hangman, John Boehner and Paul Ryan were. But this is the first time that's ever happened. So is that a big deal? And in one sense, yes, obviously. It, 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 is direction, it points directionally to the kind of minority rule, primary politics, goofballism that afflicts much of what we're doing. But I, now I want to see... Basically, you know, the the outcome of this could be worse, could be better. And I keep I keep waiting to see when when voters, but also when members of Congress will have just sort of had enough and be burned out on this. One of the obvious outcomes of this that I see is Ukraine aid seems to have gotten a lot tougher to get through. The two candidates to replace McCarthy, Steve Scalise and Jim Jordan, have gotten in the race. Jim Jordan is not going to bring up Ukraine aid aid if he's victorious. I'm not sure about Steve Scalise, but that's the one direct outcome that that seems almost certain to me. And and that's important. 
Well, <clears throat> I, I don't know whether you heard, Eliana Johnson, but Donald Trump could be the next Speaker of the House. Did you hear? Did you hear? Did you hear? How much, how much of a dumb fake media story, and we had heard it before in, the, in previous Speaker elections on the Republican side, but this time it was, and, yeah, well, Trump says, Trump says he might, <clears throat> he might be willing to do it. And I could recount all the reasons why it would be bad for Trump to do and why Republicans wouldn't do it and how Trump couldn't get to 216 votes and all that stuff. But the, the coverage of this, how quickly it turned into a question about Donald Trump was notable. Should we move to our next item, Chris, or do we have more on this? Well, we've got, I, I, we have inside Trump's surprise endorsement pointing to that that you'll read in the show notes, but the, the Jim Jordan versus Steve Scalise dynamic, and now with Trump endorsing Jim Jordan, I, I think for the reason you illuminated about Ukraine aid and a bunch of other things, I still think Jim Jordan is unlikely. He's been sucking up to the establishment for a year or so, a couple years. And, but I still don't think rank and file Republicans trust him to be in charge because of course, what would, why does Donald Trump want Jim Jordan to be the speaker of the house? Because Jim Jordan will go as hard at Joe Biden and, and try to influence the election as much as humanly possible. That is the place where Jim Jordan has been the most unstinting. So that makes sense. But I don't think that would be in the interest of most house Republicans, especially ones in persuadable districts. I also want people to hear. So Nancy Mace is a congresswoman from South Carolina who's tried to have it both ways, right? A little bit, she's a little bit country. She's a little bit rock and roll. She comes from a district in South Carolina that is not a red hot MAGA, but has, I mean, obviously it's South Carolina. So she has tried to have it both ways. And her inclusion on the list of people to vote for the ouster of Kevin McCarthy was surprising to some. It was not surprising to me because I have watched her become there. There are members of Congress whose constituency is cable television. And Nancy Mace has definitely become one of those. And I want to play a little bit of the of her. So she went on CNN with Caitlin Collins to to talk about this because and I I don't want to question people's motives, but it seems like this was for Mace a very attention seeking endeavor and it backfired on her. So let's take a little listen to that. Caitlin, the establishment is coming after me. I've had a lot of threats about my fundraising. I'm asking people to go to my website at nancymace.org to help me uh, to, to show their support because there, there are yeah. folks that are coming after me tonight. I'm glad you brought that up because back in January when there were the marathon votes for Kevin McCarthy to get this job, he was fighting to take the gavel. This is something that you said. Mm -hmm. Matt Gates is a fraud. Every time he voted against Kevin McCarthy last week, he sent out a fundraising email. Uh, what you saw last week was a constitutional process diminished by those kinds of political actions. Of course, now here we are in October. You and Congressman Gates are, are in agreement on at least ousting McCarthy. You were on a podcast together today. You yourself the have been irony, fundraising off that vote. How do you, mm -hmm. how do you explain that to, to now? 
Well, I have not been fundraising off of this every step of the way. I made my decision last night. I, I made the decision to fundraise over the last 24 hours because of the threats that I have received over fundraising and money drying up, which is why I need help. The people, the establishment is coming after me. I've gotten a lot of threats from different groups and different members that they will withhold fundraising no matter what. And I do need help from the people. And that was a decision that I made late last night because of everything that was going on. And it is a genuine ask. And if they want, if, if people want to support the effort, they can go to nancymace.org. Well, that podcast was one that is done by Steve Bannon. Of course, you once voted to hold him in contempt of Congress, which he brought up today. Mm -hmm. Is he now advising you? No. Chris, Nancy Mace was, of course, the congresswoman who made the following joke at the prayer breakfast meeting. So this is in keeping, I think, with her, with her recent public antics. Pulling this together, another year, another standing room only event. And when I woke up this morning at 7, I, I was getting picked up at 7.45. Patrick, my fiance, tried to pull me by my waist over this morning in bed. And I was like, no, baby, we don't got time for that this morning. Uh, I got to get to the prayer breakfast. And I got to be on time. And a little TMI. But um, I, he'll, he can wait. He's got, we got, I'll see him later tonight. Um, but I was here early. Yes, that's on the, the, on the all-time hit list. For so, I just I, I uh, good on Caitlin for framing, and it's a good example of how you have to frame a question to get an answer. You got to put the priors in, you've got to construct the box, and and try to get the your interview subject into it. So there you go. On to Joe Biden this week, Chris. You flagged the David Brooks column on the president, the headline, can we talk about Joe Biden? Do you want to read a little bit from it? Well, for context, this is the battle of the argument among elites. And I don't mean that pejoratively, but among, as we would call them now, influencers over should Joe Biden run again? And we talked here a couple of weeks ago about David Ignatius writing a piece saying, Joe Biden, you, you did great, but now you have to go. And David Brooks, writing in the New York Times, makes the argument, makes the case that Joe Biden is actually the best Democrat to run and that there isn't an alternative. And he opens up by talking about how long he's known Joe Biden and how well he knows Joe Biden and how frequently he talks to Joe Biden, presumably not at the Newark airport bar, but that he that he knows he knows his subject well. He talks about that. He says this. So I'm emotionally torn these days, the way so many are, feeling strong affection and appreciation for Joe Biden, and yet feeling gripped simultaneously by a pounding fear that a Biden-led party will lose next year and lead to a Trumpian gotcha Like many Americans, I found myself having the conversation over and over again with friends, sources, and people who work in Democratic politics. Whether Biden is the best candidate to defeat Trump, his chances of winning, if there is some better course. And what Brooks does that I think is quite I think Ignatius made good points, but I think Brooks makes a good point too. The The Democrats' problem isn't Biden. The Democrats' problem is the Democrats. I could have directed David Brooks to better polls, but he cites the polls that talk about how, and there's a, a recent Gallup poll out that says the same thing. You don't have to use the morning consult. That basically on the issues, Democrats are losing with voters. And because of the shift among working class voters, that Democrats have a big hole in their coalition. 
and Brooks makes a not entirely, but still convincing argument that there isn't anybody in the Democratic Party who could better reach out to those voters than Joe Biden. Chris, in my question for the Republicans is, I think Republicans should be asking themselves the same sort of question in terms of whether Donald Trump is the candidate best position to highlight the Biden administration's weaknesses on these issues. He may be, but it also may be that he, because he's going to be tied up in court and he was sitting in court this week, he's more likely to talk about his legal troubles and the deep state and himself as a victim. And I do think Republicans need a candidate who is the candidate who is best able to um, actually campaign against Biden and talk about these issues. Uh, The two that really jump out are the economy and the border. And we saw Biden this week say, oh, actually, you know, I'm going to go back to building uh, 20 miles of wall. Yeah, that was good. the, The truth squatting was interesting. CBS News and many other outlets really pushed back on Biden's allegation that he had no choice but to build the wall, not wall, movable fence section, barrier, blah, 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 blah. And I thought that, I mean, obviously there's a directional thing here because it is a a left to right criticism, which uh, did that, but it, it was a correct holding to account. And I also thought that Biden... Biden's claim that, well, we had no choice was pretty flimsy because obviously if they wanted to tie that up forever, they could because you have to get waivers from all these different agencies in order to do the work. And those waivers were forthcoming. So, you know, I thought that was a little interesting moment. Well, the other interesting moment was that Biden was called out, not just by the news media, but by members of his own party. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez came forward to call him to account. And it highlights the the difficult position Biden is in on immigration, where if he enacts the policies that he needs to in order to get the border under control, he comes under attack by by the left flank of his own party. And it is what he needs to do, but he needs to be willing to take that fire from the AOC flank of his own party, which it would probably be good politics for him. But he has proved until now, and we'll see what he does going forward, but unwilling to do that thus far in his presidency. Well, Democrats better get ready, because if they don't like this, uh, there's going to be a lot more. If Joe Biden doesn't go on to be the nominee, there's going to be a lot more that they don't like like this going forward on the border, on crime. It is when I talk to Democrat, to senior Democrats, experienced Democrat strategists, they're aware crime and the border are a serious problem with their coalition. And when you combine those two things with inflation, and I'll just uh, reiterate David Brooks's point here, it's something that I've said here many times. Who does inflation hit the hardest? Who does crime hit the hardest? And who are the people most affected by the migrant crisis? Working poor, right? Those are the people who feel the squeeze. Those are the people for whom high gas prices and high food prices are the worst. Those are the people who are more likely to live in marginal neighborhoods when it comes to crime. Those are the people who are going to see their services first disrupted by uh, migrant having to shelter migrants. So that's a real problem for the Democrats coalition. And Biden will be obliged to continue to do things like this to say to those marginally attached Democrats and persuadable voters, I get it. I hear you. Can we talk about the Biden's rabid dog? He's Second not rabid. rabid dog. He is totally he's not rabid. <laughs> 
I'm calling him Rabbit. That's ca- out of that, control. Uh, what, a ca- what a calumny! Yes, what a calumny! Commander out of control. Commander just whatever. trying to live. Anxiety ridden. Whatever's going on with this dog, it's not good. They already sent their other dog, and of course, it's a German Shepherd. It's not like some cute little, you know. Barney, Barney Bush, or the Obamas had those Portuguese water dogs. Anyhow, it's some some big, big A German Shepherd. I think. I mean, the first oh one my was gosh. major. I think the first major, one was major. Yes, they already sent Major away. Now they're sending Commander away because he got he got eleven bites at the apple or eleven bites at the Secret Service agents, but he's been he's now been sent away. And I had to highlight this is getting media coverage, but I want to pull it up. Politico has a West Wing playbook and they had an amazing playbook about Commander. This was on Monday and it was the following. I mean, I don't know who they talked to, but I'm going to read from it. it. This was like a press release from the White House, literally. White House staffers have seen all the headlines about President Joe Biden's two year old German Shepherd Commander. They're aware of the behavioral issues. It just doesn't compute to them. CNN reported last week the commander recently bit yet another U.S. Secret Service agent, bringing the total number of known biting incidents to 11. Some of the attacks were bad enough that agents required medical attention and at least one person had to go to the hospital. While common sense might suggest that White House officials should avoid commander at all costs, that's not how staffers who work in the West Wing are approaching the situation. No one's moving about campus in fear of bumping into the dog. In fact, many get excited when they can sneak a few minutes away from their busy schedule to give him a quick scratch behind the ears. Everyone loves him, said a White House staffer. He's always so friendly. Among staff, there's an emerging belief that in the eyes of Commander, they are off limits. That dog only has an appetite for the Secret Service. It's shocking that he can be so aggressive, said another White House staffer. I've never seen him like like that. Indeed. The wild discrepancy in commander's behavior has left White House staffers past and present trying to come up with theories and for it and so on. And my comment was on the, on this was you could just sub the word Iran for the word commander and it would be the same. They just can't understand how this nice country, you know, how these nice people like the Ayatollah act out. They're blaming. They just don't understand. It doesn't compute how a nice man like Rob Malley. They're blaming the victim. They are. They're, they're blaming they, the victim. I, they don't understand. I have I have some advice for the first family and the White House. Try something that is not a police dog with a name that sounds like he is part of the Wehrmacht. Right. Let's go away. <laughs> I know he. They had to be named Major and Commander. Commander. Let's move away from. Come on, try, try Barney. Try. Yeah. What were the Obamas' dogs' names? Bo and Sunny. Yeah, try Sunny. And you know, I'm not the Portuguese water dog. Is a. I'm kind of a. But I love the Scotty dogs that the Bushes had. That was great. Clintons. It and was they the, were little guys. And the Clintons Cute had a, little guys had a lot of trouble on the pet front and that all that business, but. The I don't know what the elder bushes had. I'm sure they had dogs, but the Reagans had Cavalier King Charles Spaniels, another nice size, soft, pleasant dog. Bill Buckley's dog. And of course, Lyndon Johnson had beagles. It's always good to have a beagle. I mean, a beagle is just a great choice. What's wrong with a beagle? They're, and weren't they named Little Beagle Johnson? Well, there were well, he called he had two, he called him and her. He wouldn't come up with real names. Uh, I had a beagle one time. 
that I name the greatest dog in all of history, whose name was Baines Johnson Steyerwald, his excellent beagledom. So there you go. You have in precedent, Biden's, lots of good, oh. medium-sized, friendly dogs. He named them him and her. You're right. So the I, I would I would just I would just say less military aggressive sounding names, smaller breed, and it will be okay. Chris, the Daily Beast reports that Michael Wolff's book on the future of Fox News has hit the New York Times bestseller list. But hold on a minute. With just over 3000 copies sold as of Wednesday evening, the fall had sold 3,219 copies in total, according to Circana Bookscan. That's quite a come down from Wolf's 2018 book, Fire and Fury, which sold 200,000 copies in its first week and over a million in total. And if you, you needed, if you you needed any more evidence, both that the, the Fire and Fury around Michael Wolf is over... Yeah. And that the New York Times bestseller list is a sham. Here we have. Well, now, it. now, well, now, now, now. Hold on. We'll see if Michael Wolff's book is on the uh, next week's New York Times bestseller list. I can certainly see how it made the first one because of pre-orders alone, right? That booksellers purchased lot because his previous book sold a million copies. That they did tons and tons of pre-orders, and the way you get on the New York Times bestseller list is pre-orders and pent-up demand at the beginning, which puts it on the list. I doubt that with sales like that, that it would remain. If it does remain, then we can revisit the question. But the, I, I, I can understand how this happened. I just don't think it can stay. Up next, the Republican primary debate that we talked about last week, Chris, NBC News reports that the second debate had the lowest TV viewership since 2015. And let me read a little bit from their piece. They write, with the former president again skipping the debate, how much interest would there be in hearing out a collection of non-Trump candidates? The answer, per the Nielsen rating service, about 9.3 million people. That's a steep drop from the first debate, which was also held without Trump and attracted 12.8 million people. 12.8 million viewers, excuse me. It also represents, by a significant margin, the lowest TV audience for any Republican presidential debate since the start of the 2016 cycle when Trump first became a candidate. So I went and took a look, and the Republican debate audiences in 2016, it took until, it, it took a while. The debate audiences in 2016 declined over time. As we got in deeper into the cycle, fewer people were watching, and that's happening much faster this time. Well, well, so, well I mean, to so first, I, as a point of, of privilege and pride, the most watched ever debate I helped produce in August of 2015 with 24 million. And that uh, was the first it was the Republican first, debate in 2015 that right, Megyn the, Kelly and Brett Baer hosted. And Chris Wallace at in Cleveland. And I would say of this debate, it did have fewer viewers than the than the 2016, most of than maybe all of the 2016 cycle. It is true. But 9.3 is a lot. And of course, it's been since 2016 that that has happened because Republicans haven't had a contested primary since 2016. And it would have been interesting also, by the way, to see it compared to the Democratic cycle of 2020 and how those ratings did. I guess I could have done my own homework. That would have been interesting to see. But 
nine, 9.3 million people for a debate on Fox business uh, is, is significant. That's a significant number of viewers. And I think this is a little overstated. I, I take the point, but it's a little overstated. Well, we'll we'll find out. Right. I do think that interest in these debates, I, you and I disagreed on how good the debate was and all that. I didn't think it was good. I didn't think they were asking questions of interest to a Republican audience. We'll see if if this is a trend. It's hard to know with just two points of data. But if there if the audience for the third debate in Miami continues to decline, then I think we'll have real data here. Well, as as for the the kinds of questions, I would only say this. Who would want to tune in for, and I know this, these aren't the questions you're suggesting, but there's been criticism of that debate I've seen in various right-wing outlets that the questions were too tough, too hard, not, not coming from a kind enough posture. If you think that debate was boring, imagine what it would be like if it was all a bunch, if all the questions were, hey, aren't the Democrats really bad? What would you do that was different from the Democrats? And you'd hear the same thing over and over and over and over again. There is a balance here. The questions have to come from the perspective of the Republican electorate because it is a Republican primary debate. So you don't want to ask, you know, I thought the uh, moderator from Univit was it Univision asked questions that were from a general election audience, which is a very different, a very different approach. But you have to ask tough questions that are coming from that are going to answer the questions that Republican voters have. So finding that space in between is hard. That was not my criticism that the questions were too hard. I thought that they came from a liberal perspective as opposed to from a conservative perspective that was intended to root out differences between the candidates. And there are differences because there are disagreements on the right. And I thought that for a Republican debate, the the question should be focused on rooting out the disagreements on the right between these candidates, of which there are many. Highlighting um, contrast. Yes. Highlighting yeah, contrast yeah. and helping voters to decide should be the goal. Chris, style section. I can't believe we don't have a sports section this week. Well, the, the 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 Mountaineers are off this week, and the Cardinals had their worst season in recent memory, and the Steelers lost. My sports interest this week was low. Was low. Well, my interest in the style section was uh, quite high. <laughs> I was so excited when I saw this piece by Jacob Gallagher in the Wall Street Journal. The headline is. Sam Bankman-Fried's courtroom look spells a personal vibe shift. Woof. The FDX founder cut his hair and put on a suit before appearing at his trial. Let me read a little bit from it. A fellow inmate at Brooklyn's Metropolitan Detention Center trimmed off Bankman-Fried's every direction at once curls, according to a source familiar with the case. Rounding out Bankman-Fried's sober makeover was a generic dark-hued suit he wore to court on Tuesday. According to the source, his clothing for the trial was purchased at Macy's at a discount of around 40%, an economical option for someone who faces more than half a dozen criminal charges related to the swift collapse of his crypto exchange, FTX. According to Michael Lewis's book, when Bankman-Fried was in talks with Vogue editor-in-chief Anna Wintour to sponsor oh the fashion world's oh. <laughs> Met Gala, an ill fit if there ever was one, he told colleagues at FTX that when it comes to fashion, quote, I have no idea which of these things matters and which doesn't. It's not clear that there's any way to know. 
Who could, how would we possibly know? If only, if only there were some guide to knowing what would be appropriate attire or not. I love that he cut his hair and cleaned himself up for court. And Fetter, it is, first Fetterman and now Sam Bankman Freed. I loved this because it is a sign that the way you dress and your appearance is a sign of respect. And yes. and that the way he was carrying himself before with shorts and a T-shirt and flip flops or even, I don't even know if he was wearing shoes and the disheveled look was a sign of disrespect and lack of care before and that he actually does know better. I I had to uh, I had to reprove a very dear friend of mine who I caught uh coming from uh coming from the airport having just been on an airplane in flip-flops and I I'm going to keep holding the line there. I'm going to I'm going to be a Karen. I don't know what a male Karen is, but Ken, uh, a Ken. A Ken. I'm going to keep being a Ken on putting Covering your toes on the airplane, please. Please, America. If Sam Bankman-Fried can get a haircut, you can wear adult shoes on the airplane. And up next, the New York Times. Uh, the Golden uh, Bachelor. <laughs> I have not tuned into this yet, but I will. And I will report back. My husband is out of town this weekend, so there will be plenty of time for me to watch The Golden Bachelor. He's the first Golden Bachelor. Just don't call him a silver fox. This guy does not look 72. Jerry Turner, 72, is the lead of ABC's new dating show and ready to look for love again. And he is a very handsome 72-year-old. The Times writes, producers began peppering Mr. Turner with calls and texts while he was on vacation, interrupting one of his mini golf games. He first thought the process could wait until he had until he had returned to Indiana. It was like, oh, no, we need to get you to a medical clinic for your STD test while you're in Florida, Mr. Turner said. After each development, Mr. Turner said he called his daughters, who were both extremely excited and a little bit protective. His granddaughters told him not to kiss anyone on the first night. He said, I failed. Oh, my gosh. I I am tuning in and will report back. Oh, barf. Oh, my gosh. Isn't, oh, that's, uh, first of all, white people are out of control. Just get it together. What does this have to do with white people? Isn't this an all-white cast? Oh, I'm not sure. I I will report back on that. I kind of doubt it. I, this seems like some white He's people white. nonsense. This okay. seems this seems like some. <laughs> I'll serious, report back on whether this, they found a diverse set of women for him th- today. This seems like some white people business for sure. And we talked once before about eighty for Brady. Just chill out, okay? Like, just it's the epidemic of childishness, and with baby boomers who want to have a third adolescence in their 70s and 80s, the idea of the seasons of your life, just let there be seasons of your life, okay? You don't need to be making out with strangers on television. You have some dignity, just a little, just a little dig. I'm not asking for a ton of dignity, just a little. And also, you don't need to run for a second term. (laughs) You just, you don't. Have some dignity, Joe Biden. Have some dignity, Donald Trump, Joe Biden, all of these folks, it's okay to go be chill and hang out with your family. And he had, and he has daughters and granddaughters. He has people who love him. He could be hanging out with them instead of getting STD checks at a clinic in Florida <laughs> so that he can go on the Golden Bachelor. Jeez Louise. Okay, Chris, I'm turning the mic over to you to wrap our style section. Well, 
this is for us together. This is a this is a memory, a moment that we share. And several alert readers flagged this for me. There had been some doubt whether the McRib would be returning. It was it two two McRib cycles ago that we went to the Arlington McDonald's and ate McRibs, or just one? I think just one. So the McDonald's had threatened more seriously this time that the McRib would not be would not be back this time, but they did. And the danger, of course, is that it won't be coming here. But I will find you, McRib, and I will eat you. Not because you are good, but because you have become a folkway. And much like the, the food that we eat at Thanksgiving, it is uh, a tradition that reminds us. And God willing, my sons and I will be standing in the parking lot of a McDonald's eating a McRib before all the leaves have fallen from the trees. But I won't make you I won't I won't ask you to go back. You you've done your duty. I did totally. And by the way, on my my trip in Montana, I had a a spicy chicken, spicy crispy chicken from McDonald's. I rate that that it was it was excellent. Yeah. I mean, that McDonald's is a miracle. Better that, than the McRib. It was really good. Well, you can't I mean, you can't, the McRib is like cranberry sauce, right? It's not it was it's not that it's good. It's that, oh, yeah, it's time for that again. Well, I like cranberry sauce, but yeah. How often, that... do, you eat, how often do you eat cranberry sauce? <laughs> okay, take okay. your point. I take your point. <laughs> okay, that's all I'm saying. It's all I'm... That brings us to our obsessions of the week. Where we break down the stories we can't get out of our heads. Chris, mine was, and there are, I think there was one of these stories in every major newspaper about the Nobel Prize winning University of Pennsylvania scientists who helped pioneer the COVID vaccine um, through the use of mRNA technology. And the journal had a wonderful piece about her. She is Hungarian, and I'm sure I will butcher her name. I think the last name is Kariko. And it is about her years spent toiling in the wilderness, having abuse heaped on her by her colleagues who preferred they were doing research on DNA and vaccines that targeted DNA. So and mRNA was considered like the backwater of research. Nobody thought it held promise. And the journal writes that in 1995, after Kari Ko turned 40, she received an ultimatum, leave Penn or agree to a demotion. Kari Ko accepted a new lower paid position. It left her feeling liberated, she later said, while giving her time to keep improving her mRNA techniques. It's like Fight Club. When you lose everything, you're fearless, she said in an interview in 2020 for, for the book A Shot to Save the World. Then she and Weissman achieved a breakthrough. They modified the base components or nucleosides of mRNA to, invent, to avert an inflammatory response. Now the molecule could get into cells to create ample proteins, the key to producing vaccines and drugs. Penn patented their mRNA technology. Kari Ko and Weissman, and that's her partner in this research, tried to license it for their biotech company but couldn't afford the price the school demanded, Weissman recalled. Penn eventually licensed it to another company. Over the past few years, Penn made tens of millions of dollars licensing the technology to various companies, including BioNTech and Moderna, that produce COVID vaccines. Today, Kari Ko is an adjunct professor in the school's Department of Neurosurgery. And the piece highlights... I wanted to read this too. The reversal offers a glimpse of the clubby hothouse world of academia and science where winning financial funding is a constant burden, securing publication is a frustrating challenge, and those with unconventional or ambitious approaches can struggle to gain support and acceptance. It's a flawed system, said David Langer, who is chair of neurosurgery at Lenox Hill Hospital. 
He spent 18 years studying and working at Penn and was Carico's student and collaborator. Penn wasn't the only institution to doubt Carico's belief in mRNA when many other scientists pursued a different gene-based technology. In a reflection of how her radical how radical her ideas were at the time, she had difficulty publishing her research and obtaining big grants, prerequisites for those hoping to get ahead in science and gain academic promotions. It's a fascinating piece. And what I thought was so interesting is that this, of course, is how science works. Like, there is no scientific consensus. In fact, if the scientific consensus had prevailed, there would have been no COVID vaccine. And there are often dissidents. And what kind of surprised me, of course, what comes to mind for conservatives is the we're told time and again on climate change and many other things. The science is settled. The science is settled. There's um, there are references to, quote, the science. And what this highlights is there's no such thing as the science. There are dissenting views, and often those views turn out to be correct. And it was interesting to me that like there wasn't much of a re- reflection in the media on that fact and that it's actually flawed to it's a mistake to refer to, you know, settled science or a view of the science as as her triumph highlights. And I thought the piece was wonderful and a great reminder of that. Excellent. My obsession headline from the Washington Post, Americans don't hate living near solar and wind farms as much as you might think. Now, I bring this up not just to pick on, this is the poll that the Washington Post does, I think with the University of Maryland, and that's dedicated to climate change. And the findings, which by the way, the finding I found most interesting was that anxieties about climate change actually ticked down among Americans since 2019. Just not a huge amount, But I was surprised to see that given the discussion that we've been having nationally, that the about climate change and the percentage of people thinking it was a crisis went down, thinking it was a major problem went down and more people came, have come to see it as a minor problem. So I I found that interesting. What I found less interesting (laughs) was that Americans mostly were not alarmed about the idea of living near solar panels or a wind turbine. And what amazed me most, so the framing they put on this was basically, you'd think Americans would nimby backward Americans that they are, that they would be opposed to this, but actually it's pretty good. But here's the giveaway in the article. Three quarters of all Americans said they would be comfortable living near solar farms while nearly 7 in 10 report failing the same about wind turbines. And these attitudes appear to remain largely consistent regardless of where people live. So your takeaway here is that over time, and regardless of geography, Americans are okay, most Americans are okay with living near wind turbines or solar panels. What's the story? What is the, what's, what's the point? And this is an example of how you come into a poll, doing a poll, or how you come into writing about a poll, And it could be anything. It doesn't have to be wind turbines. It could be anything. When you're dealing with the poll, don't. So in when you study scripture, we talk about exogesis or eisegesis, reading into the scripture or reading out of the scripture. So exegesis, we're taking things out of the scripture and we're applying them into the world. Uh, In eisegesis, you're taking things out of the world and putting it in. You should not read polls eisegetically, right? You shouldn't be taking your assumption into it. What you ought to be doing is looking at the results and 
finding what's interesting after you've got them. This is just, to me, as a pole hound, I found this a particularly crystalline version of how journalist preconceptions shape the way polling is done and the way that it's discussed. Chris, it is now time for my favorite section of the week, reader mail. And we have several messages this week. The first is from Leah Agnew in Fayetteville, Georgia. Fayetteville. Fayetteville. Excuse me, Leah. And she writes, and it's Leah or Leah, so excuse me if I mispronounced it. What are the boundaries, if any, for promoting a feature story on social media through guilt by association inference? This one from Reuters seems beyond the pale. I look forward to Friday mornings because of wretches. What a great team the two of you make. And the Reuters story that she highlights is the following. Wow. It's Wow. Reuters says in a tweet, in the latest, in a at Reuters series on slavery's lasting impact in America, journalists traced living descendants of a family enslaved by ancestors of U.S. Representative Brett Guthrie, whose father is close to Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. What? on earth is this story? What on earth is this story? Six paragraphs in, guilt by association. I am, you know, was it the, was it Reuters that did this originally, that we talked about originally, about the guilt by association? And they, I they... can't remember the outlet, but Reuters writes in this piece, because it's not just how they presented it on social media, it's actually in the piece. As wow. part of a series on slavery and America's political elite, Reuters found that a fifth of U.S. congressmen, living presidents, Supreme Court justices, and governors have direct ancestors who enslaved black people. Among them is Guthrie, the eight-term Republican congressman, whose businessman father is close to the minority leader of the U.S. Senate, Mitch McConnell. I mean, I'm sure he has other friends, too. Jeez, Louise. Yes. Producer Colin tells us that it was Reuters where their original investigation blared. More than 100 U.S. political elites have family links to slavery. What the heck is this? Jeez, Reuters. Brent, Brett Guthrie didn't own slaves. And what on earth is this? This is really trashy. I, I don't know where the guilt by association to, to our correspondents question. I don't know where the boundaries for guilt by association are, but this is way, way, way past the boundary. You could go through the members of Congress and you could find lots of reprehensible ancestors, especially if you can go back to the early 19th century. Can you imagine the horse thieves and whoremongers and just dastardly individuals who came before the 435 members of the House, 100 members of the Senate, nine members of the Supreme Court. What trash? This is trash. Chris, our next letter is from Brent Pickle. What a great name in Tulsa. 10 out of 10. 10 out of 10. It's great. And I'm pretty sure I didn't mispronounce Tulsa. Um, Eliana, (laughs) as I was listening to your most recent podcast, I heard Chris use a dead whale analogy while talking about a piece on Travis Kelsey and his lesser known pop star girlfriend. I'm also a member of the Dispatch, where Chris was recently on one of the live video events. Here's a screenshot where he used a similar analogy. Check out the bottom third text and the reactions. And the bottom third text is DeSantis, colon, dead sperm whale, question mark. And Chris is there, his arms wide open. 
Great exclamation. And he says, Chris, proudest moment ever. Kevin Williamson, most genuine smile ever. David Drucker looking very puzzled. And Andrew Egger staring off into the distance. And he asks, what is what possessive form of Chris is correct? Chris apostrophe or Chris's Chris apostrophe S. I go with the latter. So Brent says, Chris's sounds more West Virginia. So I went with that. I agree. No. Well, first of all, thank you. And I, I, it's funny that Mr. Pickle, that you sent this in because as I was making that analogy, I, I, as I began it, I realized why that I had dead whales on my brain because I had used the analogy for the Swift Kelsey coverage carcass and using it there. I thought, well, I, I hope nobody catches me. And not only was I caught, but it is captured here for all time. But the correct answer, unless you're writing for the New Yorker, which I'm not, is when a word, when a, when a word ends in an S, when a, a singular word ends in an S, you just put the apostrophe S after the S. You don't need S apostrophe S. I'm out on an island then. Well, you're probably an Oxford comma too, so. I'm totally an Oxford comma. I'm not, I'm not surprised. Elites, the way that elites do. And our final note is from Dean Miller, who does not give a city but we will read his note anyway. We will overlook that. Dean writes, Chris, I just caught up on the two most recent episodes of Ink Stained Wretches. I was delighted to hear that you... Oh, he gives his city here. Dean from Des Moines. I was delighted to hear that you made a stop in my city, Des Moines, Iowa, and ate at our premier establishment for meat eaters like yourself. I walk past 801 Chop House on my way to the office every day. As a regular listener, I'm tickled to think that our paths might have crossed here in my home city. P.S. I'm a CPA and work in tax for one of the big four firms here in Des Moines. I have no connection to media or the news business, but I love hearing the stories you and Eliana pick each week and the insight you both provide into how the sausage of media is made. Thanks to both of you for your work. What a lovely note. Thank you, Dean. Dean Moyne. I, I love Des Moines and I do love the 801 Chop House and it's fantastic. It's great. I also have been there. It's fantastic prime rib, which I just am crazy for. Are, Eliana, do you think you're going to be going to Des Moines before January 15th? I don't think I will be there before January 15th, but it's hard to say. Well, if you do and we can overlap, perhaps we could gather there and invite, I would love that. And invite Dean Moines and any other wretches in the region to join us for red meat in that location. I would love that. Dig it. That brings us to Chris's favorite time of the week. When I am forced to say something nice, but Chris, as always, please lead us by example. So when we think about the problems of misinformation and disinformation, and a lot in our vocation, a lot of people in our vocation spend a lot of time thinking about this, but here is a really useful take. It's in, it's at the Volokh Conspiracy, the blog from the, the law professor that is at Reason. And this piece is written by Ilya Soman, and it's about the work of Harvard law professor Guy Uriel Charles. And here's the lead. In recent years, there has been widespread concern that democracy is threatened by the spread of misinformation and fake news on social media and other similar new technology. Rick Hassan's recent book, Cheap Speech, How Disinformation Poisons Our Politics and How to Cure It, is an important addition 
to the literature making this case. Hassan and others argue that the problem can be mitigated by public and private actions to restrict the spread of misinformation on social media, though Hassan advocates more modest regulatory measures than some other commentators. In a recent symposium on cheap speech at the Balkanization blog, Harvard Law School professor Guy Uriel Charles explains how this case is weakened by the reality that the demand for misinformation may be a more significant menace than the supply. And here's what the professor said. I wonder how we ought to think about the problem of disinformation and misinformation. If we assume that the market for political information, political information is operating efficiently and that the problem is not one of market failure, which is how Rick frames the issue. Rick defines cheap speech as, quote, speech that is both inexpensive to produce and often markedly and often of markedly low social value and frames it as a problem of political market failure caused by information asymmetry. He uses as his model the pathbreaking paper by George Akerlof, the Nobel Prize winning economist entitled The Market for Lemons, Quality, Uncertainty, and the Market Mechanism. In that famous paper, Akerlof explored how the information asymmetry between sellers and buyers with respect to the quality of certain goods might result in a market in which lower quality goods overwhelm high quality goods and in, and in a reduction in the size of the market. For example, if you're a buyer of a used car, if you're a buyer in the used car market, you can't tell whether a seller is offering a reliable used car or a lemon, though the seller knows. To hedge the risk that you're buying a lemon, you make a lower offer, so on and so forth. He, he counters that thinking, and he makes the correct point that the demand, it, that, it is, that it is not lemons driving down the value of good speech. It may not be that lemons are driving down the value uh, of, of good speech, good communication. There is no market failure, he writes, given that the market is supplying precisely what the people want. Republicans seek and get the information they like. Democrats seek and get the information they like. Everyone gets to live within their echo chamber and no one must be confronted with ideas and information that makes them uncomfortable. Of course, this is no way to run a democracy. And I think this is just such an important thing. I go on at length about it. It's a big theme in my book. It's something that I really keep coming back to. This is a demand problem, right? It's not that you have a marketplace where so many people are looking for high quality news and information and can't find it. It is, in fact, that so many people want the junk. The, so many people want McRibs that they're not, they're, they're not interested in the competition. And that tells us it is an educational, it is a noetic problem and I've often likened it to America's struggle with obesity after the arrival of super cheap calories in the middle of the 20th century. We have this incredible abundance of information and change. Yes, there are things that outlets can do that we as journalists can do. Uh, I'm very skeptical about things that the government might do. Um, but the, at its core, this is a demand side problem. And the sooner we recognize that, the sooner we can turn ourselves to the work of education uh, and creating a, a, a more demand for more good stuff. My favorite item of the week was the NPR story on our favorite chess oh, prodigy, yes. Hans oh, yes. Niemann. It is Hans Niemann poo-poo's a chess, a chess cheating theory that's based on vibrating beads. Chess prodigy Hans Niemann says he is, quote, unfazed, perspicacious, and composed as he competes in the World Junior Chess Championship. But Niemann is also answering questions about an improbable method of cheating one year after controversy took over the chess world. 
He sat for an interview with Piers Morgan on Monday's episode of Piers Morgan's talk show. And let's play the clip. Out of interest, how do you, how do you disprove that you've used anal beads to cheat? <laughs> I mean, how, how could I, you know, prove a, disprove a negative? It's, it's like, well, no, you know, that's how, how do you expect me? That was never a, a serious thing. That was something that the media caught up. But that was, you know, if you if you look at the the consensus among chess players, the consensus among experts, it is an unequivocal fact that I have never cheated in an over the board game. Yeah, but hands. I'm just wondering, how do you disprove it? I mean, were you strip searched? Did they explore cavities? Where, where do we go here? Well, through tournaments, there are security checks where they, you know, will do, you know, various security checks, you know, metal detectors, different scanners. So, Neiman may be cheating, but not by using anal beads. Leave it to Piers Morgan. So this he is, says, this, yes. this is this is this is why the the most prodigious crab on the whale carcass of news is Piers Morgan because he is willing to ask questions about vibrating things in your tuchus. And Chris, next week, I mm. want to talk about, as a favorite item, I have been reading Robert Novak's memoir, Prince of Darkness, that is such a wonderful book about journalism and old school journalism. Novak died, I believe, in 2008, and it is a retrospective on his career that began as an Associated Press reporter in middle America and brought him out to the East Coast where he had a long career as an opinion writer, writing the Evans and Novak column. And I'll talk a little bit about that next week, but it's been a joy. It's a joy to be reading it. There's your reading um, assignment, Wretches. It's can, great. And it I told great. Chris, had I read this before, I think it would have been in my favorite. It would have been part of our favorite journalism books and movies episode. But that is all the time we have for the news about the news. If you have a story you want us to talk about, email us at wretches at nebulouspodcast.com and sign up for our newsletter at nebulouspodcasts.com. This has been Ink Stained Wretches from Nebulous Media, produced by Colin Chicola. Find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Wretches. Wretches.